Good morning. My name is Art Cash, discipleship pastor here at River Oaks, and I'm excited to talk to you this morning about Acts 21, verses 1 through 16. So as you're turning there, I've got a question for you. What sights, smells, sounds, songs, movies make you feel nostalgic? Toy Story? Yes. Maybe even sights and sounds. Uh, last night in Tennessee, perhaps nostalgic for the 90s, but it wasn't to be. Okay. Sights, sound songs, Toy Story. So this nostalgia makes you potentially long for a time that was simple, easy, when things made sense. For me, this will surprise absolutely no one, but 80s action movies fill that slot. Okay, We knew who the good guys were. We knew who the bad guys were. In Red Dawn, it's Patrick Swayze versus, help me, the communists. This is very straightforward. In, in Die Hard, it was Bruce Willis against the greedy Eastern European blonde-haired guys who showed up in like every 80s action movie. Okay, In Aliens, it's Sigourney Weaver versus the aliens. Xenomorphs for the nerds in here like me. But back then, the, the, the good guys, they didn't have superpowers. What they had were flaws, obvious flaws, awesome one-liners, and lots of machine guns. Like I said, it was a simple time, simple times. So the power of nostalgia and longing, it can even extend to a time or place where we, we haven't directly experienced it. We can sometimes look at the early church and, and long for a simple time and easier time when there was unity, when everyone had everything in common, like we saw in Acts 2 and Acts 4. Longing for times of clarity when the Holy Spirit directly told people what to do, where to go, where not to go. Well, the problem with nostalgia is it's not always accurate. Imagine my surprise being raised on 80s action movies on TBS and then seeing them for real, okay? Nostalgia is not always accurate. We, we can't always trust our memories, or our longings. The same can be said for our romanticized version of the early church. In fact, chapter 21 will show us just how much has changed in the 25 years or so since Acts 2 and 4. We will see how conflicted and how confusing these times were. Specifically in our section, we're going to see how wise and secure and sincere Christians wrestle with discerning the will of God, with so much at stake, including Paul's life and the credibility of the gospel. But we can take confidence, though, that no matter how challenging the times were then, how challenging they are now, no no matter how confused they might have been, how confused we might be, that that we worship an all-knowing, all-powerful God of creation, and He is never confused. He is never conflicted. He will accomplish his plans and purpose, and that should give us eternal hope this morning. That's that's our main idea, is that God will accomplish his purposes regardless of whether we're confused or whether we have clarity on his will. He will accomplish his purposes and his plans. We'll work through the passage like this. We'll see Paul's determination, and we'll see the disciples' pleadings in verses 1 through 13. 
we'll see that when that determination meets pleading, then we end up with some, some big problems. We'll see how those problems are resolved in verses 14, 15, and 16, the will of the Lord. So as, as we read our text here, please listen for, for those main ideas. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 16. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Father, we ask that you would give us clarity on your word. Give us confidence that whether we are confused about the next thing that we are to do when we step outside this building, that that we can have complete confidence in you, in the hope that you provide us through the work of your son, Jesus. Father, we thank you for that gift and that provision. We thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, God will accomplish his purposes regardless of whether we are confused or have clarity on his will. So here we are. This is Paul's journey to Jerusalem. This begins the final story arc for the apostle in the book of Acts. Throughout this section, Luke is documenting their voyage on their way south to Jerusalem. You can see it on the map there, maybe. But it's, it's the dotted lines, city by city, port by port, they're headed to Jerusalem. Paul spends the rest of Acts, once he gets in Jerusalem, in prison, both there and in Rome. So I, I like how the NIV here describes what's happening in, in verse 1. Luke says, after we had torn ourselves away from them. That's different than just after we had parted from them. 
we put out to sea and sailed to cause. So, so Luke is doing more than just documenting. We can read this and be like, okay, city, city, port, port. But Luke's doing more than just documenting the journey. He's helping us see the difficulty for Paul, for the disciples, for his companions, for those that love him and that he loves. So the depth of this, this mutual love that we just left, the, the, the elders from, from Ephesus that continues on his journey, this love that they have for each other, the weight of it, is, is what helps us see what's going on in chapter 21. Our passage, it might seem kind of straightforward out of the gate, right? This is what we're used to. Paul, Paul's the protagonist. He's determined to go to Jerusalem. The antagonist, they're pressuring Paul to not go to Jerusalem because they love him. But as typical Paul, he overcomes the crisis and he presses on with the mission. But there's more that's going on here. And, and I want you to see the tension of this passage early so you can wrestle through this with me. Chapter 21 is tough. It is challenging what's happening here. Two of the main ways that we see the Lord leading Christians in our passage is one, through the leading of the Holy Spirit. We see that all over this passage. And two, through the wisdom of fellow Christians. So you can see the challenge. What do we do when those two ways of following God are in conflict? What do we do? What does Paul do? What do the disciples do? We'll try to answer that this morning because the main conflict in our passage is centered around Paul's ironclad determination to get to Jerusalem. So why? Why is he so determined to get back there? Back in Acts 19.21, Luke says that Paul is actually resolved in the spirit to go to Jerusalem. But what, what motivates this, this degree of, of commitment? One, he loves his people. I mean, it's just been a, a few months since he wrote Romans. And you know in Romans 9, 1 through 3, where Paul is with much anguish, much sorrow. He's saying, if, if it would be possible, let me be cut off from Jesus so that my brothers in, 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 in the flesh, my Jewish brothers, could be saved by him, if it would be possible. He loves his fellow Jews. He wants to get to Jerusalem to share Christ with them. That's a great motive. Two, Paul wants to bring this collection, okay, the, these, this money and these offerings that it is extremely important to him. He's been collecting from all the Gentile churches. He talks about it in Romans 15. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 16. He hopes that this will strengthen the unity among Gentile and Jewish Christians. A lot has changed in 25 years, but this tension in some ways has, has only increased. Paul's so serious about this, I mean, he could have just shown up with the money himself. But instead, you'll remember from Acts 20 verse, verses 4, he's got a bunch of Gentile believers with him. He's got Sopater, the Berean, he's got Aristarchus and Secundus, the Thessalonians, Gaius and Timothy from Derby. And the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, he's got a slew of Gentiles with him. Paul wants James and the Jerusalem church elders, he wants them to lay eyes on these Gentile leaders, these Gentile believers. He wants them to see personally their generosity and love for the Jerusalem church. So Paul's determined. He has good motives. 
But we need to think for a moment about the connection between motives and results. Is that always a guarantee? I mean, any, any newlyweds in here, at least within the first few years? Okay, we'll, we'll talk in hypotheticals here. How, how many naive husbands have found out the difference in good motives leading to mixed results when for Christmas or an anniversary you buy your wife some workout equipment? Okay, you're thinking health. You're thinking, you know, we're, we're getting strong here. And she's thinking, he thinks I'm out of shape. Okay? Or, or you know, you, you, you buy that vacuum cleaner. I mean, it's nice. It's Dyson. You know, it's got the whole, like, uh, tornado thing that sucks up all the dirt. You're thinking, this is practical. She's thinking, you think my house is messy. New husbands, listen. Okay, regardless of your motive, those are just home purchases. They're not presents. Okay, that's just advice free of charge, all right? But you can see the, the connection, or not, between motives and outcomes. Paul, Paul was determined to do what he thought was right, and he clearly had God-honoring motives. But did that mean he was making the right decision? Did it mean that everything worked out well for Paul? It really depends on how you view prison and martyrdom, right? I mean, most of us aren't, aren't facing imprisonment for our faith, but we can still ask the question, how do we react when, when our purpose, our determination, and our good motives blow up in our faces? I mean, it can be downright disorienting when we are giving great effort. We're trying to honor God, yet our choices, they, they seem to make things worse rather than better. And if we're honest, we can begin to blame God and even hold up our efforts and our, and our good motives to him and, and self-righteous accusation. Don't you see? I'm trying, God. Why won't you help me? What's going on there? Well, for one, we may be confusing our will for our lives with God's will for our lives. Remember, we're talking about discerning the will of God And even when we are confused, he will accomplish his purposes. One way confusion comes is when our expectations for the future don't match up with our current reality. Paul and the disciples show us in this passage that that we cannot determine God's will for us based solely on how we would like our lives to go. The disciples want Paul to live Paul wants to go to Jerusalem. Somebody is coming away disappointed. What's God doing here? I don't think we can say this truth often enough. God's revealed will for you in his word is to be made more like Jesus. His will for you is sanctification. We see that. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Colossians 1.27 and 28 Colossians 3, 9, 1 Thessalonians, we can go on and on. His will for you is sanctification. Now, what that means is being made more like Jesus. So then, becoming more like Jesus means our desires will come in direct conflict with God's will of making us holy. Disappointment and failure for the Christian is not punishment from God but rather an opportunity for Christ to make us more dependent on him and more like him. 
Where else will our assumptions about how our life should go be challenged except in God's Word? This this passage, it can help shift our thinking from why isn't my life going like how I planned to, Lord, help me to see how you are making me more like Jesus through the life you're giving me right now. So may the Holy Spirit continue to work in us, aligning our desires in our will for our lives with God's desire, his will for our lives, whatever that might look like, whatever it might take. So Paul is determined. He has great motives. But does that mean his desires are lined up with what God wants him to do? We might think, Art, why are you wasting my time with this? It's the Apostle Paul. He's kind of like the hero dude, Okay. We might think, of, of course he's right. This is, this is Paul. But does that make him perfect? Of course not. I want us to slow down in, in chapter 21. Mitchell will talk to us even more about this next week. But we need to challenge our assumptions when we put Paul on a pedestal that he would not want to be on. I mean, it, it, just for a second, a little thought experiment. If this were Peter in this section, in these next few verses... And two different groups of believers challenged him and what he wanted to do. Would we automatically be like, go, Peter, don't listen to them. I'm sure it won't be a mistake this time. You go on, Peter, you're the man. We wouldn't do that if it was Peter. We'd be like, ah, buddy, you better listen. (laughs) So we need to consider who these fellow believers are, what their counsel is to Paul. Because community and the wisdom of fellow Christians They are beautiful gifts from God. We know this. That's what makes the rest of this passage so challenging. What about us? We know what we should do when we are confused about the will of God for our lives. As brothers and sisters in Christ, what we should do is consult fellow believers for their wisdom and advice. Perhaps this passage should also make us consider something else that even when we're dead set on a course of action, even when we believe we have perfect clarity on what we should do, we should still be open to advice and correction from brothers and sisters who love us. What should happen when what we want to do is in direct conflict with the advice that we receive from wise and loving Christian brothers and sisters? One, since none of us are the Apostle Paul, we better have numerous solid biblical reasons to disregard the counsel of godly Christians who love us. We can miss the significance of what's happening here with Paul and disciples because of our highly independent culture. Okay, I, could, again, I could barely text someone and say, I need to borrow or I need help, much less talk to them and ask, consulting people for advice, I should be able to figure this out on my own. That's our culture that we're fighting against. And if we do seek counsel, we're usually guilty of only asking advice from those who will tell us what we want to hear anyway. And if they don't, we usually find a way to minimize what they said and rationalize what we want to do and go ahead and do it. 
Lord, help us. Brothers and sisters, it is a mark of growing Christian maturity when you are truly open to receiving, praying, and acting on wise, godly advice from believers who love you. That being said, let's see what happens when Paul's determination meets the disciples' pleading. There's two situations here that that show us the conflict and the love shared between them. The first is in verses 4 through 6 and the second 8 through 12. So look back with me at 4 through 6. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So Paul and his companions, they spent a week entire. We see this mutual love in verse 5. When all the disciples, their wives, families, all the kids, everybody accompanies them out to the beach to kneel, pray, and say farewell to each other. And what makes this situation go from emotional to challenging is verse 4. When we read that through the Spirit, they are telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So not only does Paul have people who care for him telling him not to go, but Luke tells us they were doing so through the Spirit. So now the pressure only increases in verses 8 through 12 with an ominous prophecy and more pleading to Paul from another group of Christians. So look look with me at 8 through 12. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Okay, so who who are these folks? Hopefully you'll remember Philip from chapter 6. He was one of the seven. He was chosen to serve the the Greek-speaking Hellenist uh, widows. From there, Philip went on to proclaim Christ in Samaria. He shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. Here we are over 20 years later. And we find him and his four daughters in Caesarea, the last stop before Jerusalem. Agabus, Luke wants us to see him in the mold of an Old Testament prophet. We know that Agabus is trustworthy because when we first met him back in chapter 11, he warned the church about an approaching famine that did take place in the days of Claudius. So they know they can trust him. So I don't know what this situation looked like. Did, did Agabus like, introduce himself to be like, hey guys, it's me, Agabus, remember? Or did he just kind of walk up to Paul silently, take his belt, it must have been a lengthy piece of cloth that bound up his, his garments, not saying a word while people are gathered, and he begins to tie up his, his own feet and, and arms. 
I don't know what this looked like, but if that was it, the situation was probably quite tense as they waited for him to explain what he was doing. So Agabus delivers this visual warning with the belt, but not only that, then he delivers his prophecy with a thus says the Holy Spirit. Well, that's important for us. This, this isn't a Holy Spirit nudge. It's not a prompting. It's not a feeling. It's not a, I think this is the impression I'm getting. This is a thus says the Lord word. Paul, this is what God says is going to happen to you in Jerusalem. Now remember, this is... This is supposedly a simpler time for the church. The Holy Spirit gives direct prophecy. That means they all have clarity and confidence on what they should do next, right? Not so much. How do we know? Look at the impact the prophecy has on the people gathered with Paul in verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So let's pause. Who who is this we? Who's us? We and the people mean everyone, including Philip the evangelist, his prophesying daughters, all of the men accompanying Paul from Berea, Thessalonica, and Asia. These people are pleading with Paul, and they cannot be easily dismissed. This includes Timothy and Luke. All of them are trustworthy. They love Paul. They are believers. They know the scriptures. They are participants in forming the early church and even writing the New Testament, namely one Luke, the physician, who will write word for word more of the New Testament than Paul. So we don't just say, nah, not not listening to you guys. They all have the same Savior, the same Holy Spirit. And this is the group of believers who plead with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So what should Paul do? What what should the disciples do? Now we're beginning to see some of the problems that happen with Paul's determination and disciples pleading. First problem, it's probably the most pressing one, is this. Is the Holy Spirit to blame? Is the Holy Spirit to blame? to blame for for giving conflicting messages? Is the Spirit telling Paul one thing and the disciples another? We know sitting here, theologically, doctrinally, the answer is no. God is not a man that he should lie or change his mind. Numbers 23, 19. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. But what do we do with this passage then? Paul is resolved in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, 1921, but fellow believers, verse 4, are telling Paul through the same Spirit not to go, and another set of believers are saying, urging rather, don't go after a prophetic word from the Spirit. Do you see the problem? If we look carefully, we can see the confusion is not from the Holy Spirit. Even though we might be confused or conflicted about God's will, he will accomplish his purposes no matter what. The solution is a few verses back. Chapter 20, verse 23. Where Paul shares that the Holy Spirit has shown him that in every city, including Jerusalem, imprisonment and affliction await him. The Holy Spirit is revealing the same truth to Paul that he is to Agabus and the disciples. Suffering and affliction are ahead for you, Paul. The confusion then is not with the Spirit. 
but with how Paul and the disciples react to what the Spirit has revealed. When God's will comes into conflict with our will, there's problems. Somebody's got to submit, and it's not going to be God. <laughs> we have to submit. Problem two, while, while that may answer, or that answer may show us God's unchanging consistency, immutability for Kevin Fowler. Where's Kevin? Okay, he's, he's immutable, he's unchanging. We are still left with a big problem. Remember, in this passage, we see two main ways of attempting to follow the will of God. One, the Holy Spirit leading. Two, listening to the counsel of other Christians. What do we do when those two ways of following God don't just seem to be in opposition, but they, in reality, they are totally conflicted? I mean, so think about this. You, perhaps you've, I still remember the first time I had like uh, the GPS in, in the rental from Hertz in Washington, D.C., trying to figure my way around to get to the Ruby Tuesday. And it was like magic, this little voice. It was like, turn left, turn right. It was awesome. We, we take it for granted now. But you, so let's say you're driving on the road, and, and, you, and you've got your Waze going, your Waze app, your, your, uh, your maps, use Google Maps or Apple Maps, whatever. You've got that thing going, and it tells you that there is a traffic snarl ahead. Then all of a sudden, it's, it's giving you not just one option, but two options, three options with a similar ETA. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I don't want options. I don't want conflicting opinions. I just want someone to tell me for sure which direction to go. That's what I'm looking for. Some of you right now are wrestling with, with what the will of the Lord looks like in your life. You pray for clarity. You talk to other Christians but there's still so much uncertainty for you. Some of you are thinking about college destinations, career decisions, what to do in relationships. Some of you are trying to make impossible decisions, caring for aging parents or sick spouses. You move forward trying to love them well and honor God. But you live each day knowing that there are no easy decisions. So you keep doing your best even though you know the times ahead will be difficult. Clarity on the will of God for you would be such an answered prayer. For the Holy Spirit to clearly say, turn right, turn left, do this, don't do that. What I'm hoping for you today is to see through Paul and the disciples, we're seeing that even for those closest to the Lord, the way forward was not always clear. You, you, can, you can see that it was not simple in our passage. You can almost hear them pleading with Paul in verse 12, the disciples, we love you, Paul. We don't want to see you suffer and die, Paul. Maybe it's not about him. Maybe they're saying, listen to us. You, you could continue to do so much good for so many churches. You can continue to write to them, encourage them, strengthen them. Paul, you can visit them if you're not in prison. Paul, please, you cannot proclaim the gospel if you're dead. And how does Paul respond to their pleading in verse 13? And Paul answered them, what are you doing? What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Paul's determined. Here we see the, the, the will of the Lord. Paul is determined. The disciples are pleading. But the fact still remains that either Paul or the disciples are wrong. Neither party is perfect. So how do they resolve this impasse? How do they know what to do with this level of conflict and confusion? Let's look in verses 14 through 16. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Since he, Paul, would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. They agree together. Let the will of the Lord be done. What does that mean? Is, is this just some kind of passive-aggressive, have it your way, Paul? You know, I'm going to take my, my ship and, and I'm going to go home. Are, are they giving up and saying, just let go and let God? Is this some kind of passive thing? Absolutely not. They are making a choice. They are choosing to rest in the will of the Lord and actively choosing to trust him with what comes next. And we see in verses 15 and 16 that there's no drama there. They just simply do the next necessary thing that needs to be done. But they do it with this confidence they believe that if, if, if Paul is right, then God will use him for his glory. If Paul is wrong, God will still use him for his glory. What's remarkable is they can't know it at this, at this point. They can't know this, but that's how it plays out. We know that despite the mixed results of the rest of chapter 21, Paul ends up sharing the gospel with his Jewish accusers, he shares the gospel with the chief priests, the governors, Felix and Festus, the king Agrippa, Bernice, many prominent men of the city, on and on into Rome. He shares the gospel. We know Jesus uses Paul because he tells us so in Acts 23, 11. Now, they wouldn't know this yet. So they're actively submitting to the will of God that only ends up making sense in hindsight. Acts 23, 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him, meaning Paul, and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. How encouraging that must have been for Paul to know that right or wrong in going to Jerusalem, Jesus was with him. Brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. We can have confidence because no matter where we go or what we do as believers, we are united to Christ. Our lives are hidden in his, Colossians 3. Perhaps in those moments, those gathered around Paul were thinking of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We sang about it this morning. Right before he was bound by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles to die on a Roman cross, he prayed like this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So by going to the cross, by praying this way, Jesus did more 
then just give us an example of how to submit to God's will. If that's where we stop, of like, man, Jesus did it great, I can too, we miss the gospel with that. By going to the cross, Jesus fulfilled the will of God that we would belong to him forever. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. How did he do that? According to the purpose of his will, Ephesians 1, 5. The God who works all things according to his will has redeemed us. He has forgiven us. He has united us to himself. Ephesians 1, 10 and 11. Do you know what that means for us? Right now, it means that if you are united to Christ by faith, you are never outside the sovereign will of God. Even if you make a mistake, even if you make the wrong call, even when you sin, you are not outside of his sovereign plans and purposes. Now that message of grace, that message of love, if we respond to that as an excuse to sin, to do whatever we want, then we prove we don't actually belong to the Lord. But for believers, that, that level of covenant security, <laughs> that, that gives us confidence and, and freedom to take action knowing that the Lord has you no matter what. This means we are free to take action that we believe will bring glory to the name of Jesus. We are free to act wisely, trusting that the consequences of our decisions, good or bad, God will use for our good and his glory. May we be encouraged by what we see from Paul and the disciples that even for those hearing directly from the Lord, even for those literally writing scripture, the way forward was still sometimes confusing and it was for sure hard. But, we see how they, we see how we can draw confidence from our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. By the Spirit, we choose to trust in His will for our lives. So then we act, knowing and believing that because of Christ, we are secure in Him forever. Amen. Father, I, I thank you that you are God and we are not. <laughs> Father, we thank you that your will for us, your plans for us, your purposes are, are so much greater than anything that we could come up with ourselves because your will and your plan and your purpose for us is to save us to yourself and that we might glorify you. Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would help us this morning. You would change our hearts. You would renew our minds through your word, and you would help us to discern what is good and acceptable and perfect, that we would know that your will for us is our holiness, to be made more like your son. Father, help us by your spirit to be who you are equipping us to be, who you are calling us to be according to your will. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.